Welcome aboard the Adotat Show, where marketing, media, and ad tech converge. Fasten your seatbelts as your host, Hisat Latin steers you through the digital world of advertising trends and marketing innovation. Jobs in AdTech. Are you looking for a new role in the industry? Head over to jobsinadtech.com today. Employers attract top talent for as little as £50 per open job role. Strap in and brace yourself for a roller coaster ride through the wacky world of advertising and marketing. Get ready to chuckle and gain some serious insight because this is going to be a hoot. I am your host, Hey Soklat and the Marketing Maestro, and I'm here to guide you through the twisted bays of ad tech and Marcom, along with some serious industry heavyweights who are sure to bring the laughs. Now first, let's give a big welcome to Lana McGilvray, the co-founder and CEO of Purpose Worldwide. Lana's journey reads like a plot from a rom-com, but instead of romance, she's taking over the brand strategy game with style and a dash of sass. From writing for public television to shaping the stories of over a hundred top-notch brands, Lana is like the Mary Poppins of marketing. Practically perfect in every damn way. Her career is as shiny as a glittery disco ball, and today she's here to sprinkle some of that sparkle on our show. Now get ready for the man with a tech-savvy swagger, Chris Harihar, the executive vice president at Modop. Chris like Chris is like the Sherlock Holmes of PR, solving the mysteries of B2B and tech sectors with his award-winning PR magic. If there's a digital riddle to be cracked, Chris is your go-to guy. He's turned small fries into big shots and worked his mojo with giants like Verizon and IBM. The stuff of legends, right? And how about that Joe Zappa? the CEO and founder of Sharp Pen Media. I like to think of Joe as the Yoda of marketing strategy, wise, insightful, and maybe a tad bit mysterious. He's here to take your marketing plans and turn them into money-making machines. Think of him as the captain of your marketing Millennium Falcon, ready to blast off and take your business to the stars. And now it's time to unleash Lou Pascalis. The creative maverick with a big dose of chutzpah in the communications industry with a rap sheet that includes content, mobile, social media, and digital marketing, Lou's a pioneer in advanced TV. His specialties, pretty much everything from data-driven marketing, mobile marketing, media content, social media, consumer promos, sponsors, events, and brand marketing. This guy's a real force to be reckoned with. Known for his knack for innovation, risk-taking, and delivering the goods. Plus, he's the go-to guy when it comes to spilling the beans on the nitty-gritty of the advertising revenue issues at X. And he's got the inside scoop on what the heck Linda and Elon are thinking. So here, ready to tackle the nuttiness of the ad tech and Marcom industry. It's like a no-holds-barred wrestling match of favorite marketing minds, and we're going to cut through the BS and serve up the good stuff. So grab your popcorn, because we're in for a hell of a ride.
So issue number one, writing the digital rodeo and ad tech PR. Ad tech PR professionals like the people here are like digital cowboys in the wild west of the internet, navigating the rapid tech evolution and complex landscape of privacy regulations. They're tasked with evolution and a complex brisk pace of technological advancements with a patchwork of privacy laws in the U.S. where there's no federal privacy law. But states like California, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, and Virginia have implemented their own privacy laws. With the absence of a NAP with a unified federal privacy law in the United States, what can ad tech PR people do to navigate this? In a landscape where technological advancement and privacy regulations are constantly evolving, how can ad tech PR professionals stay agile and compliant? What strategies? are effective in keeping pace with rapid tech changes while ensuring, ensuring privacy compliance. Lana, you first. Thanks, Pesach. This takes me back, actually, to when we first met when I was running an email marketing company. Um, much the Wild West, there were no privacy laws. There were combating state laws in all 50 states. Um, I, Lou was probably maybe at AJ Gallo or Amex or somewhere like that at the time. And so there was no way to be compliant, actually, at that time. Um, we were waiting for uh, some ration and a federal law. We got it in email. Here we are again um, in a time in which not just PR professionals, but brands, they're not going to, you know, PR professionals versus somebody like a Verizon who actually has the dollars, et cetera. Uh, everybody needs full. So uh, what can PR professionals do? We can help share um, and educate. Um, the brands that we serve and the technology stakeholders um, that all reach consumers who we should all be thinking about and make sure that they understand how to be compliant. Right now, I think there's one best way actually in the world to be compliant. Um, it happens to be a client, so I won't um, give away the name, uh, but there are ways to monitor those things in real time with the laws as they change until we get a federal law, which probably, uh, you know, the whether the forces deliver one or not, um, we need to live and comply. So I think that we can educate and it behooves everybody to figure out um, how to comply, especially as we go into an election year when a lot of funny business um, happens. Um, so we expect to see more craziness. I see Lou shaking yeah, his head. I, uh, I, uh, as Lana knows, I'm a huge advocate of trying to get a federal privacy standard when I was at Bank of America, we were, you know, and, and Verizon was too, investing large six-figure dollars in privacy uh, for America, which was led by a wonderful, wonderful person, Stu Ingus. And they were working with Congress, desperately trying to get consensus around privacy law with the recognition that if we have a standardized privacy law, it actually helps digital commerce be more competitive globally. And if we have balkanization, which is what we're seeing now, it actually makes it harder to to do business in the United States from a digital commerce standpoint. And ultimately, that's good. I don't think it's ever going to happen, um, not to diminish the effort. But I think we're stuck with this endless game of whack-a-mole, which then to answer your question, I think really the first thing that I would add to what uh, Lana's baseline was, which I agree with everything she said, is you now need to look at your tech expertise. Uh, which was a term that we used at Bank of America. What is my tech team's expertise? And add compliance and compliance tech to that. 
it's going to constantly change. It is a senior level executive's responsibility now because it comes not only with compliance risk, but reputational risk if you get it wrong. And so you need to actively understand the privacy landscape. I think Lana is right. You will never be 100% compliant. Your standard should be 95 or 98 because of the law changes, the requirement of retrofitting, updating. You know, in our case, we had 60,000 web pages that all needed to be harmonized and they weren't centrally served. And so you've got to make sure your language is there. You've got to make sure all your line of businesses, including the ones you never heard of, are actually walking the walk with compliance. And you need to read out to the management team. You need to be able to make the management team aware, here's where we are in compliance, here's what we're implementing. If you think about this holistically, it's an opportunity to differentiate your company in the way that you treat your customers. It's no different than how you might treat your customers in a retail environment. But I think as we go through the next few years and many companies find themselves afoul of state laws like CPRA, and end up on the wall on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, those companies that do it right consistently and ensure that they're doing business with vendors who reflect their values and their own standards on how they treat a customer are going to differentiate themselves. And so I look at it as a crisis Yeah, there's a lot of heavy lift here. There's a lot of risk getting it wrong. But I'll tell you what: if you get it right consistently, it just adds dimension to your relationship with customers. Is that your term, crisis? Crisis. What was the word again? Crisis. Crisis plus opportunity. Crisis. Crisis. Did you make I that did, up? I did, but in a different context many years ago. But crisis is really the opportunity to be forced to change, which most companies need because when they're presented with the opportunity to change without a forcing mechanism, they fall back on status quo because it's like a comfortable pair of jeans. So, Chris, to you, how would you balance innovation and ad tech with increasing demand for privacy? Yeah, I think the the privacy conversation is so complicated because I think uh, Lana and Lou have raised this, but there's just going to be an increasing patchwork of state-by-state legislation. And that's driven by so many factors that are completely outside of our control. It's, It's largely, to some degree, it's mostly political. Uh, to, to some extent, I mean, there is obviously consumer demand for uh, greater privacy regulations and, uh, you know, support. But I think you're seeing politicization of the argument where states are trying to outdo what California did. You know, you see uh, Maine, for example, uh, being pressured by L.L. Bean, of all companies, uh, regarding their recent proposals regarding um, privacy legislation for the state. And so I think we're just going to continue to see this patchwork evolve and grow. Whether or not it gets to the point where somebody actually has the ability to say, let's implement something at the national level to ensure that businesses are protected and that they're able to effectively navigate these the, the rules of the road and ensure that you know consumer choice ultimately is an impact and an undercut. So it's, it's, it's tough. Will that occur? To lose point, I, it feels like a bit of a pipe dream. But if, if things get bad enough, and by bad enough, I mean even more state-by-state legislation where everything's sort of competing and throwing tension between states and the cost is so onerous to manage uh, each state's rules of the road, then perhaps we can get there. From a ad tech PR perspective, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a compliance officer. Uh, all I can do is educate myself as much as I can about each state's uh, upcoming uh, or current regulations, 
make sure that my clients are updated and in the know about them so that they can navigate as best that they can from a privacy perspective. It also comes into play when you're thinking about announcements. You're announcing some, uh, some new capability or functionality. Does it run afoul of a state law? You know, I think that's something to really be careful about. So there's a, there's a bit of education is constant in this space. Um, and you also want to be conservative to some degree to be risk averse. And at the same time, you know, you want to showcase thought leadership on the issue and showcase that you know what you're talking about when it comes to these regulations so that clients feel uh, supported, supported and feel like, you, you, you know, you're an expert on the issue so that they can feel confident in working with you. And so it's, it's really a game of whack-a-mole, to be honest, when, when it comes to this. But I think, um, you know, we'll see what 2024 holds. Uh, you know, you see even the new COPA rules, I think, uh, uh, proposals rolled out yesterday. Um, you know, I think you're going to see more privacy-related regulation proposed in 2024, especially in an election year. And, you know, navigating it, ducking and dodging is going to be quite interesting, for sure. Joe, on your end, what do you see ag tech companies? Do you think that they're taking the privacy regulation seriously and actually doing appropriate PR? I think the main problem with PR on this topic is it's like been one of the biggest issues in the space for years now. And the instinct, you know, we've all worked with dozens of these companies and the instinct is often like, all right, let's talk about privacy, like how to prepare for the end of third party cookies. It's like the most commonly written article, right, in the space. And then it's like collect more first party data and clearly communicate with your customers and be transparent. Like if you're just saying what everyone else is saying, then it's not true to your business. It's also not differentiated. So no one's going to remember it. So I think the most important thing is to have business marketing alignment on this issue. So that means that if you do have an actual advantage in the privacy arena, like if you're a retail media network and you can say we're leveraging first party data, whereas like DMPs are doing like shady stuff with third party data, right? Like, you then you can make that argument and you should be out there and maybe that should be a pillar of your messaging. If you are one of these companies that is actually vulnerable to the privacy issue and it's a significant headwind for you, then I think the role of marketers to lose point about the reputational risk is actually to point out that risk and be like, hey guys, we can slap privacy safe on our homepage, but that's not really an effective solution. Like the reputational risk is going to endure and we're going to risk the worst thing that can come from marketing in uh, or from PR and ad tech, which is like getting the New York Times expose written about us because we're selling location data, um, you know, to anyone who can buy it. So I think it's like if privacy is an advantage, great. Roll with that. Figure out how to uh, leverage it for your marketing. If privacy is a risk, then marketers should be the first people at the table to raise that risk and see what the company can do from a business perspective to mitigate it. I think this moves into our another topic. How do we manage the expectations, public expectation against the backdrop of technological promises and legal uncertainties? For example, how would you align your PR strategies with the actual capabilities and limitations? For example, as you mentioned, everyone's saying, you know, we're privacy safe. What 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 are the limitate? What how do we align our PR strategies to that? I think you're oh. Lana. Oh, go ahead, I, whoever. Go ahead, Lou. I'll, I'll, I'm happy to follow you anytime. Uh, we we, we um, I was actually going to just offer this on the last question before you moved on, since you can edit. So I read an article today this morning that blew my mind. 
that talks about how the big tech companies are respecting or not privacy laws. It's by a guy named Sander Cowenhoven, who is the chief technology officer at Oxford Biometrics. The title is Big Tech Comes with Big Responsibility, and it's an indictment of the last 25 years of Google's consistent disregard for privacy choices and transparency to the detriment of their their customers, their users, and their advertisers. And it it was shocking. And as you read it, and I think all of us in this call will remember each of these issues over the last quarter of century, but it adds up to something that is um, is really makes you rethink, is Google a well-run company? Because I always thought that it was. And it seems like they consistently err on the side of their business and not on the side of their user or their customer to the point where it makes me question a lot of, you know, a, a lot of what the business that I've done with them. But bit of a tangent there. On, on this current question, I think we need to start with one fundamental truth. If you ask a consumer if they want more relevant messaging from advertisers, overwhelmingly they say yes. And if you ask the cons- that same consumer in another survey if they are uncomfortable with advertisers tracking their behavior, overwhelmingly they say yes. And these two things are incongruous, and I don't think most consumers re- realize that. So Lana brought up the point of education, and Chris doubled down on it. We have a real responsibility to do two things well. Have the customer understand, the digital consumer understand, that to serve them better, we need to collect certain information from them if they're willing, and make sure that we have a very good, transparent contract with them, which says we will use the data only in this way. If we are breached, we will do everything in our power to ensure your data is not compromised. And, you know, we will truly and honestly be a force for good in order to create a better environment. And then some consumers will opt in. Many will not opt in. And I think we have to recognize that we're going to have three different layers of relationship. People that we have a deep relationship with who have given us permission to to understand their behaviors and serve them better. People we have a limited understanding of. And then those that we just look at as pure play prospects that we know very little about. And we have to be able to walk and chew gum in those contexts. So what are the best practices for building consumer trust in this era? Anyone? Focusing on the consumer, by the way. So I have to, I I love what uh, Lou said, but I I think that we're entering an era of AI responsibility and ethics. And as things get smarter, and I ran an email compliance company. I helped, uh, you might remember Josh Baer, um, and I launched one around email compliance, which allowed every consumer to opt out of email in, in relation to that law if they wanted to. And so few did. It was not a money-making business, but at the time, that was the best kind of database technology you had for it. Um, When I say focus on the consumers, we're entering an era where there's no lag between what's really going on, what happened with Google to lose point. Everybody in the industry knew about that, what was going on at Twitter X. Everybody in the industry knew about it long before it came out in the media stories. It took a little bit longer to help the reporters to do the homework they needed to justify the stories. But everybody knew what was going on. And I I think the ones that have the most to lose and get most furious are the ones that are spending the dollars. And so, and they're the ones that also care about the consumers the most. So if, 
if you're not opting in at some point or really paying attention at the consumer, you know, there's every reason why they will flip to, you know, channels like TikTok and others. It's just too easy. Who, who gets email anymore? You know, um, what a disaster story. So I think if you believe in the consumers, pay attention to them with your marketing, with your privacy and with your communications. Don't make it, um, you, you can't gloss over it. I just thought if I could chime in on this, um, one of the biggest failures of advertising or ad tech PR will always be the lack of education on the value proposition of personalized advertising for consumers. They don't understand, they, they don't really fully understand the trade-off of personalization and providing data for a better user experience. And Google and others, Facebook as well, have utterly failed in really educating the consumer on the value proposition, on why they should share information so that they can have a more relevant user experience. As a result of that, this is why you're seeing so much patchwork regulation arise. You're also seeing companies like Apple sort of weaponize the fact that the value proposition isn't clear. And so Apple has done a great job of positioning themselves as a privacy-centric company because they understand smart. They're, they're excellent marketers, excellent brand. They know how to build a brand. They understand that there is a gap and a gulf uh, when it comes to understanding the value proposition of targeted, relevant advertising. And so they've leaned into that to create more of a, uh, uh, a sticky product that ultimately seems more thought leadership driven around privacy. And so... Um, I think, and, and that's why you saw Facebook fail in trying to talk about ATT and, um, you know, position it as a, you know, a core benefit for consumers and for SMBs. It was, they were, they were starting at a point, they were uh, starting at the end of the story and they hadn't done the work to get the uh, consumers to really understand the value proposition. And so I think um, we're, we're seeing more companies try to do that now, but um, I think, you know, the, the ship has sort of sailed on that. So we have to um, figure out very quickly how to address it. Joe, is this an actual conversation that ad tech companies are happening? Meaning, is this a, are they having the conversation over how to convince consumers? I think it's interesting because Chris put his finger on something that I think is very real, which is that uh, ad tech companies, especially in PR, this is part of our job, aren't having that conversation with consumers about what they do and why it's important and why it might be valuable to end users, not just to advertisers and publishers. But if you think about the structural reasons why that's the case, well, because all of the ad tech companies, again, they're selling to advertisers and publishers, right? For the most part, they're not selling to consumers. So when they're hiring marketers uh, and when they're thinking about their message, consumers are like the third stakeholder. Right. It's like they're, they're catering to investors and they're catering, catering to those customer groups. Um, it's hard to get all, but maybe like the biggest ad tech companies to spend money on or even to prioritize in their messaging, uh, convincing consumers that what they do is worthwhile. But when you have those dynamics, that creates a situation where, you know, we're like 15 years into programmatic, um, and the industry is sort of like, you know, morally bankrupt in the eyes of a lot of consumers who are like, this, this merely exists to track me, right? That's the whole surveillance capitalism paradigm, right? Like, I think it's a little uh, overblown. And I think that consumers do get a lot more out of it 
um, than many people are quick to recognize. But we can understand structurally why those sort of public relations campaigns aren't happening. I do think there's a forcing mechanism that's come, to oh, Joe, ahead. to that point. There, there's this little codicil in CPRA that Lana has heard me quote many times. In, under CPRA, uh, the marketer is required to perform due diligence on every vendor with whom they do business. And failure to perform said due diligence will result in the loss of presumption of innocence by the California Attorney General. So if you've got 6,000 approved vendors in your programmatic you know, inclusion list, you are required to do some form of due diligence. And um, yeah, Lon and I are familiar with one company that's doing a great job in that space, Safeguard Privacy, that does that work on behalf of the marketer and is in deeply. Uh, but the reality is, if you then do that due diligence and you find out they're not compliant with your own privacy standards, you can't unknow that. You now as an entity are aware of that. And you have to take action. And if you don't take appropriate action, you are liable. You're liable for not doing your due diligence, but you're also liable if you don't reassess whether that vendor is someone that reflects your values and, and actually will allow you to continue to build business. And I think marketers are going to end up doing significantly more business with significantly fewer publishers because they have a deep understanding of how that publisher treats privacy. And if they're not transparent about it, or if they have a bad track record, like Facebook, uh, TikTok, uh, uh, X, uh, and now Google, um, you know, maybe you'll see the open web actually benefit from this. Maybe that will be a point of distinction for open web publishers who are actually incredibly transparent about what they're doing uh, in general uh, by their very nature. Uh, and so this may be a bit of a renaissance that is forced by legislation doing actually what it was intended to do while we all complain about it. Yeah, just one real quick. Um, I was a marketer for ad tech companies for a long time, and I loved it. And if I had a privacy advantage, I would be leveraging a communications firm like Chris's, you know, or ours all day long if I had an advantage. Let's talk about COPPA. If I was going after Walt Disney and I had an advantage there around, you know, under 13 or something like that, you better believe that the privacy advantage is. And if I didn't or it was on roadmap and I could get there faster than a competitor because it was an industry-wide gap that was being addressed, I would be educating in closed doors to the brands in support of the consumers well in advance um, of that advantage coming out there. So I think it's our job to make sure that we're understanding them in, in right there with the clients. Yeah, to answer, I was just, I was, I was trying to find an image of some of the messaging Google was using to roll out some of these new privacy changes where when you go to the Chrome browser, you see the eyeball or whatever it might be, and you get a little bit of, you get some messaging around privacy. And I remember seeing that a couple months ago and thinking that a consumer would have no idea what that uh, message was about, you know, what the language meant. You know, it, it feels like there, it often feels like, and I say this as a PR person, it feels like there's a disconnect to some degree here where um, a lot of this is so B2B and so, uh, and so in the weeds and complicated. You have a lot of marketers and communicators who are not consumer-facing marketers or communicators who are working on developing the messaging around this that would then be served to the consumer. And uh, that's, that's a big miss, I think, ultimately. You need, you need more consumer marketers and consumer communications professionals thinking how to best frame and package 
some of these, some of the education and some of the capabilities or some of the functionality that Google and some of these others are rolling out, you know, uh, uh, in some cases uh, because they have to. Um, but I, I think there's a lot to be said about how poorly we've all done uh, in the ad tech space on really like, you know, messaging this the appropriate way to the consumer. You look at Apple and the way that they've done it, it's really incredible. And it's, it's night and day compared to what some others are doing. And so it's kind of fascinating to see that. Um, even, even I think about some of the great coverage Apple has been able to net around privacy, they, they're also understanding of the fact that there are dedicated Apple reporters that have no idea how advertising works, that have no idea how ad tech works. And so they can easily serve them any message <laughs> regarding Apple being privacy centric and it gets covered and it gets covered positively because it, you know, it, there's a lot in the space. It's just around education and folks don't know. Uh, how to educate the consumer audience on on uh, the value proposition for personalized advertising, and and there's just a lot of infrastructural channel challenges that hold uh, the space back. You know, a simple thing is Apple's got 500 dedicated reporters covering any move that it makes. Of course, they can uh, activate that group to cover them positively um, from a privacy perspective. So there's so much to be said here that uh, uh, it's it's. It's complicated. To be fair, though, <laughs> to be fair, having seen this movie before, uh, you know, cons- we, we have consumers who are simultaneously activist and apathetic. They are complaining about privacy rights, but the minute there's an accept button on their screen to accept cookies, they hit yes because they want access to whatever the content is that they need. And so that's a very mixed signal for marketers and for tech companies to, to litigate. And I think there's been a massive failure of imagination. How do, what is the schoolhouse rock version for adults of how privacy choices matter and how people should make those choices? And we usually make those choices binary. Yes, you can look at everything, including my medical history, or no, you can't look at anything at all, get away from me. And we need to actually have meaningful choice, a middle road. You can look at certain things, but not everything. And again, one of the things I like about the California legislation is you need to be able to defend why you're collecting this piece of data on me. And I think that's a good starting place. It's a hard bar and it's a heavy lift, but let's figure out what there's a low, medium, and high, and not just a yes and a no. And let's then figure out how to gamify that so consumers actually educate themselves over a generation and get better at making those right choices so marketers can tailor what they do. All right, moving on. The Marcom campaign puzzle, decoding the ad tech dilemma backdrop. So how how do ad tech companies stand out in a crowded market? The intense competition, overwhelming array of acronyms and claims make it tough for consumers to disconcern which solutions are best suited to their needs. Ad tech brands must therefore find innovative ways to make their presence known and a clear value. How do you effectively differentiate between strategic goals and tactical actions in your Marcom plans? Chris, to start. Yeah, um, in terms of standing out, I would just say, uh, be sobering about what you do. If you have skepticism regarding each announcement, each talking point, it's helpful. I think it creates 
an opportunity for you to be, be, be more creative about how you could go to market and truly differentiate yourself um, compared to others in the space. And so I think it's really important to be sobering about your message, your solutions, not drink the Kool-Aid and think that you have the best thing uh, in market uh, because it ultimately allows you to be more interesting thinking that way, which gets you the um, differentiation that you're looking for and next you, you know, hopefully the, the positive coverage that you're looking for. Um, I also think that I often I'll work with I'll work with a number of ad tech companies, Yahoo, Double Verify, a whole host. And um, I think it's important to be mindful of what's occurring in market and that you should lean into what's occurring in market. The the worst thing to do is to have a story that's completely untethered from the market and just try over and over and over again to tell that story without being informed by the broader market and what's occurring in the space. And so if, you, if you're sobering and skeptical about your own stories and your platform, your technology and your message, and you lean into trends that folks actually care about and want to cover and want to talk about in market and avoid, uh, you know, leaning into some message that it was crafted in a, in, uh, you know, in a lab that you thought would net what you want, but doesn't, then I think you'll ultimately be successful. So it's a lot of, you know, I think that combination uh, ultimately, you know, allows you to stand out and be differentiated. Can, can anyone here share an example where a strategy impacted the campaign success? One where you use perhaps storytelling, third-party validation in, in ways that you could, you know, besides the narrow paid advertising channels. I have one example that I like to cite from my collaborator, Paul Connecton, who is the CMO of Beeswax when they got acquired. Um, so Paul, Paul helps with strategy for our clients now, and he always uses this example. You know, Beeswax, obviously they had Ari Paparo, big name in the space. They got a lot of attention from brands. Um, and like everyone was coming through the door, right? Nike, Uber, these kinds of companies. And they were getting a lot of attention, but they were having trouble with close rates and with accelerating the sales cycle. And what they figured out on the marketing, marketing team was that the, their key persona was really control freaks, uh, which was a great term because it actually alienates a lot of your potential audience, right? Like if you're not a control freak on the advertising side, you're like, I don't want a DSP for control freaks. That's not who I am. I want something that's going to make my life easier, right? But the way their tech was set up, it was actually an optimal fit for uh, advertising teams or brands who had big data science teams and wanted to get into the nitty gritty um, and figure stuff out. So by making this the pillar of their messaging, they were able to attract uh, the right kinds of prospects, which, you know, shortened sales cycles. And it was a sort of thing where Paul says, you know, the sales team is like pushing back on it at first because it's like you're going to scare away some of our prospects. And they, the leadership was like, all right, show us one deal that actually closed that doesn't fit this persona. Uh, so I think that's a good example of how it's about like, how do you stand out if there are hundreds of DSPs, right? It's by figuring out what are your actual unique strengths and how do you get a message that capitalizes on those so that you stand out to the limited part of the market that's perfect for you because you can't stand out to everyone. Well, how does one use effective storytelling, Lana? 
I, I think it'll the effective storytelling and actually that last question, I think we can tie them together. I mean, let's be honest, we work in the Olympics of ad tech and, and we are running teams that are excellent in general at what they do. The market commoditizes quickly. These companies often go public or they're acquired for a lot of money. And there's a lot of great people actually in the industry these days. So as we're talking about some of the tougher things, but uh, we've all worked with serial CEOs and CMOs that know much more than I do. And many of them have been brand side and tech side. And some of them are even at Google. You know, today I think of Marta and some, there, there's some good people over there. I mean, I'm not thrilled with what's happening over there. Um, but in terms of the storytelling and actually the differentiation, that's that's important. Like we're all career professionals, but we're not alike. And understanding who you are and who you should partner with and how you're going to grow your business and how you're going to grow your business next is really important. On the branding side, it's a reflection of what you offer and who you serve. And so one thing I've found over the years is that the clients don't always spend enough time, especially once they're mature, speaking to their clients about what the value they deliver is. And so sometimes when we're relaunching them, we find out tremendous things um, that they've done that their competitors are not doing. And we help bring that to life um, in the storytelling, um, sometimes even in the look and feel. Like you'll look at an ad tech company that hasn't even you know, updated their brand for, for so many years, and it doesn't even look like what they do today. And so those elements are really important. The same way that an Olympic athlete you know, changes what they eat and how they work out all the day so they can stay ahead of those that they're racing against. So I think that's just great. You know, picking up on that, uh- uh, having been a client-side marketer for three and a half decades and leading big teams, uh, when I was at Bank America, I had the privilege of leading the marketing data use governance team, which one of the things I loved about them is they could always overrule me, which was kind of cool. But this was an eight-person team that looked at how data was being used with a standard, which is subjective, which was just because we have the permission to do something doesn't mean we should. And we apply that to our, our vendors. Do consumers reasonably understand that if they consent to their data being used by you, it's going to be used in this way? Or have you gone beyond a standard of reasonableness? So standard of reasonableness is very hard to execute in corporate America with the volume of things that you need to adjudicate, which is why we had a separate team doing this. And it leads to really good vendor conversations. It reads very, you know, you start to get into philosophical issues. You know, um, do you guys see your awesome responsibility in this? How are you storing that customer data and that customer permission? Are you obsoleting that permission after a period of time uh, because the marketplace has changed so much and people might have made changes? You know, just a lot of things that start to give you signal but also give the vendor signal uh, about what's truly important. And a lot of what we're doing now requires conversations like the one that we're having today, where there might not be an ideal answer. There might be more than one solution. But if you can agree conceptually and philosophically that the right thing to do, the moral high road, is to do less with the data than you can, to do less with the permission than you can, and really build something that is unassailable so that five years from now, if a regulator is looking for looking at it, or the press is going to do a story about the last 25 years of our business like they did about Google recently, um, we're going to show up well, and we're not going to hurt our brand. We're not going to diminish our shareholder value. And uh, people will say, it doesn't surprise me that they're serious about customer privacy because that's how they operate the rest of their business.
So in this like bustling bazaar of all these voices and all these savvy merchants of these these ad tech professionals, how do we? And they're all trying to attack, attract attention, and they're all this brimming with overzealous hawkers and flashy signs. How do we cut through the clutter as PR professionals with a message that resonates? Anybody? No worries. Yeah, I would say lean into your PR agency because uh, they should be sort of independent thinkers and auditors of the market, and they should be able to provide counsel on on how you can truly uh, have success from a PR perspective. Because I think often, um, you know, the marketing team thinks that they have the coolest thing, <laughs> you know, in market, and they uh, think they have the greatest message. And sometimes just it's just not the case, you know. And I think um, PR really needs to be, to some degree, uh, an umpire uh, calling, uh, you know, balls and strikes on on uh, stories and messaging, etc. And they have to be able um, to really help guide, you know, the the company uh, to success. And so relying on and, and leaning into your your PR team, I think, is really important and critical in order to ensure that. You're, you're going to market with uh, things that are ultimately successful. Is the ad tech world oversaturated? Is it making this impossible to actually get your message out? I don't think it's impossible, but I think you need two things, which are consistency and a POV. And very few companies hit that bar. Uh, so first, the differentiated and instructive POV. We talked about how to devise that. But then even if you do have a POV, and even if you develop one with your ad, with your PR agency or whomever, uh, you then need to be consistent. And I think that's where one of the biggest challenges for companies in the spaces is, is they're like, they, they, you know, the conversation is happening every day on platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn, but they pop up like once a month and it's like, you know, Lana or Chris or whomever secures them this like great spot in Adweek. And then it's like, I was in Adweek. And it's like, okay, that's good. But what would be way more effective is if every day you were talking to the community on Twitter or LinkedIn. So that then when you have a self-promotional thing, people you have a little goodwill and people are like, cool, I'll engage with this. But 90% of your content shouldn't be here is my thing in ad week, right? It should be uh, educating people every day on what's going on, asking questions and engaging in the conversation. I'm going to commend Lou here because I had a fantastic experience, a career favorite experience this year. And it wasn't for a giant company. It was for a small company he and I were both advising. And again, I'm not going to call them out because it's exactly, it's what Lou kind of developed and we were all a team together. Um, but we were doing some work around CAN and we were thinking about the communication strategy for a small woman owned company. And we knew, right, we had other clients, we had big fortune 500 clients and agencies out there. And you know how much people spend on that event. And he asked me, he said, do you think that we could grab the mic and that we could own a conversation out there? He knew the strategy was brilliant. And we talked it through and I said, you know, I think we can, but the, this is not just a media strategy, is it? This is, in, you know, he's very savvy. We were thinking of all the channels. This is social. This is media. This is op-eds. And some of it was luck and some of it um, was great planning, but that particular client, the earned media, the social presence, the engagement, the conversations, it was just phenomenal to the point that other clients in the agency that were bigger in retainer were uh, upset a little bit. <laughs> they were everywhere. How on earth did that happen? And it was hard work. It was great strategy, hard work, and then understanding when the mic will 
be given at key events over a certain period of time and how to really be in front of the eyeballs where they're going to be at any given moment. You're too Thank you, Lou. You were instrumental in that, but Joe, it goes back to your exact point. We had a very specific and narrow POV. We wanted to establish one thing and we had three sort of, you know, reasons to believe underneath it. And then we shopped that around to everybody who owned a platform because we weren't going to rent out a 300,000 square foot cabana on a beach. That was, you know, that would be a five-year marketing budget for us. Uh, But we plugged into others on that one key point uh, because everybody understood the importance of it. So uh, thank you, Rana, for the compliment, but you deserve as much credit, if not more, than you give me. Yeah, it's more. definitely important that we can that PR professionals can work without getting a huge boat at Cannes. <laughs> Although I have to admit, Chris, your boat photos—that um, <laughs> was d- double verify versus uh, IAS. I, I like those. That was a, um, that's an example. I would I would just raise that. It was a, a funny tweet um, that I I you know from when I was in Cannes. And uh, it kind of it kind of blew up, but I think it also goes to show that uh, ad tech PR people. Um, I think it's really important. You know, I've talked about healthy skepticism about uh, what client offerings are, but uh, you have to really eat, sleep, breathe, and live this stuff in order to be effective, um, because the market just changes so quickly, and there's so many competitors, there's so many players. So many stakeholders. Uh, every day, it feels like there's a new announcement that changes everything. Um, it really just goes to show that you have to be deeply invested in the work that you do, and uh, like that's a good example where like I feel like I, I work in house for that company, uh, and uh, which you know, uh, and and I feel that way for any client that I work with. So I think it's it's you really have to have that sort of approach when you're working in this space because otherwise, you know, it kind of just moves on. Chris, I want to build on that real quickly as the old timer on this call. The other thing about our business that is essential is the community. We are constantly talking to each other about the latest and greatest tech release and the implications of this law. And I love that about our industry. It's been like that since the dawn of time when I started here and there were only 10 cable networks and no internet. Uh, we just pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, can you explain this to me? Because I don't understand that. And it's more important now than ever before on the tech data and regulatory side. Uh, and, and it's important to have those relationships, and relationships do matter in this business. I think as, as insiders in this industry, this industry has a lot of jargon, a lot of tech jargon. More, I think only the financial industry has more. How do we? How do you focus on results than just this jargon that constantly comes out? Honestly, with the jargon, there is a ton of it, but it doesn't help on the communication side. If you're not speaking kitchen table language or you're throwing jargon out at experienced journalists, they 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 don't want it. They resist it. I mean, Pesach, what you're doing, by the way, the kind of cheeky approach to kind of speaking to power and putting out the stories and the fresh take and the illustration is great. Uh, Joe does a really great job. I want to compliment him. You know, once a week, he's got a family too. He doesn't need to be educating CMOs and others, but he's pushing out a great newsletter and kitchen table language that helps people understand all the wonky words and all the acronyms around the industry. Uh, So you you don't participate in it. Yes, there are words um, that are important when we're inside uh, wonky little rooms where we have to be accurate about things, but for the general reader, it, it will put them to sleep anyways. Nobody reads those stories. 
Yeah, this industry is full of a lot of skeptics and cynics. Uh, every time I go to an event, I always see someone in the corner with their um, beer, just crying over it. How, like, how do we address this cynicism in the industry and shift the narrative towards a positive environment, especially with this cookie stuff? Everybody is talking about the cookie. What's going to happen? How do we make it a positive? Have a positive outlook. I'm Pollyanna. I mean, I started Purpose, right? I left AdTech and started Purpose and sought relationships with people like Lou, who's working with the ANA as a force for good. I was really impressed with what the CMOs were doing there. Uh, I, I don't believe the industry is bad. It was the Wild West in the early days. And there were some rotten people in the early days, I have to say. Um, right. I, there are some personalities I do not miss in the industry. Many of them uh, I've retired. They probably live in Cannes full time. Some of them have passed. But more and more of the folks, especially post-pandemic, I mean, you see a lot of community building, a lot, you know, we launched Bridge recently as an industry, which is the first DEI trade organization that we've ever had in our industry. It's 2023. It's, it's egregious, actually. Um, but I don't believe, I think we keep talking about those folks and we make them the heroes and, and push them out in front so they can lead the rest of us. Do you find that the audience is skeptical, however, of all the claims that ad tech companies are making? Better for a skeptic on this call, so I'll turn it over to someone else. <laughs> I think, I'll, I'll just go quickly. I think there's a perennial uh, inclination to suggest that ad tech and martech are going to die. I do think that privacy changes are going to make it harder for independent ad tech companies. I think, you know, Google and Meta and Amazon, these behemoths, um, that have like huge stores of first party data and advertising technology and engineers, like they are well positioned to cope with these challenges in a way that independent ad tech companies might not be. But nevertheless, like advertising and marketing have been around for centuries and they're not going anywhere. And I think like, especially with, um, interest rates seeming like they're going to decline in 2024, I think like next year is going to be a better one for the industry than this past year was. I also think that challenges like the, the death of the third party cookie finally coming to Chrome are going to uh, create a need for ad tech companies who can come up with new methods uh, to help advertisers and publishers adapt to a new ecosystem. So I am fairly optimistic as well about the direction of the industry. I am industry. optimistic as well. I mean, everyone's going to have, um, you know, let's start with the fundamental truth. Nature abhors a vacuum. And marketers were not opining for the last 20 years on we have this expectation of ad tech and we do not want ad tech to do that. And so ad tech filled the vacuum and did everything they could to bring a bigger audience, claim that these proxies were actually good proxies for the audience you want when often they weren't, and did things that would approach nefariousness with regard to privacy choices that consumers had made. And I think that pendulum is coming full circle now. Uh, you know, early on in my career, I was taught this expression by my predecessor, don't expect what you don't inspect. And so for a lot of years, we weren't inspecting how our customers were being brought to us or how our prospects were being brought to us through ad tech. Now we have to. The regulatory environment, the fact that everybody is on all these social media platforms calling people out when they step out of line, the fact that you see board members more than ever asking questions in this space uh, the fact that customers are willing to boycott on the drop of a dime for virtually anything is going to force marketers to care. It's going to force marketers to opine. It's not only holding their ad tech vendors accountable, but the agencies who they sort of outsourced all of this to without giving them the right brief. 
they said, agencies manage this for me. And the brief was really about efficiency financially, but it wasn't about protect my reputation. It wasn't about protect our consumers. It was just help me get ROAS. Well, those days are gone. And I think as the marketer becomes more activist herself, we're going to see ad tech step in line because that's where all the bills get paid. So I actually am very optimistic about the future. We're going to be in a renaissance. It's going to be ad tech for good, which is all the companies Lana works with, uh, really making the ecosystem better. And some of these other companies that are very opaque and have a bad track record, well, we're going to all sit in a call like this 10 years from now and be, oh, remember that company? Yeah, they went out of business. I think that's our future. And just to add one thing to that, I think 2023 was really the year where ad tech kind of went mainstream. Topics like brand safety, for example, I mean, we did we ever imagine that we would see it covered at the length of which we have on the year? And so, and with the election forthcoming, I mean, you're going to see more of that. Um, but even issues like cookies, uh, ad-supported streaming, 2023 was really kind of an incredible year where a lot of these topics are becoming uh, front page news which gives us the opportunity to really help educate the market in a new way, I think, in 2024 and really showcase the value proposition of some of, uh, you know, the, uh, whether it's personalized advertising or some of the ad tech, you know, capabilities that, uh, that the market's trying to introduce. And so I think there's a lot of reason to feel good about where we're headed and what 2024 will hold. That's a really good point. 330 million Americans are counting on us. So we're in another election year and we hold a lot of media that reaches those um, households and people. Yeah. I feel like I've seen Lou covered in every publication over the last two months, which I think speaks to the fact that this stuff is, uh, it, you know, it, it has really um, shifted. And uh, to see people talk about brand safety like They've talked about it for years. It's really kind of incredible. It, it's gratifying. After a decade of talking about it, finally, you know, everybody else is concerned about it. But, uh, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. You know, Lana's point, we've over-rotated on brand safety, and now we've seen advertisers pull back by as much as 80% in their overall financial support of quality news journalism or any kind of journalism. We've seen a quarter of the news organizations in this country fold in the last 10 years because uh, marketers are worried about brand safety and getting caught in the culture wars and we're over rotating on it. So it's, it's again, Chris, I appreciate the compliment, but it's, a, it's about finding a balance and everyone's individual balance point is going to be different. And so marketers have to initiate these conversations with their PR department, with some of their internal stakeholders with their other agencies, and really say, who do we want to be in the marketplace? How do we want to show up? Is news something we want to continue to support because it's our civic responsibility and it's really good financially to do so in terms of ROAS um, or not? And, and, and I think we're finally seeing the conversations take place that need to take place, which is really gratifying. Well, one going of back, speaking of brand safety, um, how do you combat information in this, how do brands combat digital? Uh, sorry, how do brands combat misinformation right now? Um, obviously, on X on Twitter, if your brand's on there, you now, they now have the community notes where anyone can just put anything about your ad about your brand. What methods are effective for combating information on X? Hey guys, and I'm so sorry. I actually have to hop. Uh, forgive me, but. Um... But thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Great it was so fun. <laughs> thank you. Be well. 
We got to turn this one over to Lou just because I, I know I got up at five in the morning to listen to this conversation with Kara Swisher on this topic. And, and so did many of my peers. So I wouldn't even dream of taking that one. It's, it's on everybody's mind, you know, well, obviously. Yeah. It's it, what's going to happen to Twitter. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, there's a lot out there. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm trying to, you know, look to the future. I don't think Twitter and advertising have a future together. And, uh, I'm speaking again with Linda tomorrow on that very topic. We obviously disagree on that. But I think in general, what brands need to do is to have a very clear understanding of where the culture is. And that is not something, again, that shows up on an Excel spreadsheet and that is easily explained to the management team. But I think for many brands, we're in a period of time where we need to get beyond this idea that to play it safe is to sit on the sidelines. I think brands need to take a stand on issues that matter. Even though there's been, you know, some marginal pullback on uh, uh, ESG, what we used to call corporate social responsibility, I think marketers themselves, brands themselves, have not pulled back on it. They're still doing the things to financially support diversity, equity, inclusion, sustainability, combating recidivism, hopefully supporting journalism, and seeing that their core customers really respect when they do that. Once you do that, you start to look at how you go to market and what conversations you need to be in. And you might widen the aperture a little bit. I think we're going to need technology to really combat the worst part of misinformation, which is deep fakes. Uh, and use things like AI. Adfont is media who I uh, work with uh, has a product now that within seven minutes can determine if an article um, is in, is misinformation uh, and inform and rate people on that. Um, you know, we're really excited about that. Uh, but I think the tolerance has to go up. I also think that the bar needs to be clearer. It can't just be binary. No, we're not going to ever advertise on that platform. Or yes, we'll totally advertise on that platform because the greatest platforms have some really bad stuff out there. And you need to go to a deeper level. And it's a lot more work. Marketers are going to need to do that work. I was just saying that's a good uh, point. I mean, I can think of examples of putting out PSAs around disinformation on YouTube. Might not be a bad idea. So you've got the eyeballs. It's just a very unsafe environment. So I think you just have to think critically about everything. Well, as everyone knows, um, Musk does not believe in a PR marketing team. <laughs> and companies like Zara, Krispy Kreme, Costco also don't believe in PR teams. And crafting brand identity is not through conventional advertising, but creating resonant experience and narratives. You, you just hit the million-dollar word. How are brands leveraging? Sorry, I thought, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Experiences or narratives? Narratives. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're using an agency, an internal marketing team. For me, the narrative was always the CMO and not uh, and not PR but that was just my own experience. You have to have a centralized narrative and that narrative needs to be fulsome with regard to existing customer expectations and your vision of the future and how your brand moves on that continuum. And what we really should have is a coalition. It should be the chief marketing officer. It should be the chief communications officer. It should also be the CEO, frankly, 
uh, and maybe it's the chief sustainability officer. And, and it should be a five to seven year plan. And again, Joe, I love what you said earlier. It's the POV. The POV is the mission. And the mission needs to differentiate us, be within our brand permission set, and be aspirationally yet attainable. And, and so I don't care who leads and who follows, but we need to actually have those conversations to show up today. I don't want to use the most overused word in our industry right now, which is authentic, but we need to show up in a way that does authentically make our company stand out in a way that is achievable uh, and repeatable by everybody in the organization. What are organic ways to do this, though? How, how can we organically work with cons- um, engaged consumers? Yeah, you're asking about the organic one, and you brought up the consumer case studies, and um, the, I think those were good ones to bring up, and you brought up Elon, and obviously he owns a media channel, and he's doing things that dictators did, you know, by the way. Um, 15 years ago, when the channel launched, there was a dictator in South America. We were working with Leo Burnett, Mexico, to get the campaign out there, but he was getting on TV and Twitter for four to six hours every evening. And he was the only voice in front of the people and he shut down the major house journalism. And so these are not new playbooks. I think the question and to Lou's point and to Joe's is it's the message and the channels and the mix and how they work and resonate for you with those that you're trying to reach. I don't believe in the consumer cases actually that you're bringing up that they don't use PR at all. I think if you dig down a little bit. There are a lot of great owned and paid stories in which how they leverage the tactic of PR is different. The Ice Ice, uh, Bucket Channel was one of the first ones where it was like low investment, started on social and then leveraged. Other people tried to replicate, but the paid media cost to do that on social like boosted enormously and you couldn't replicate the campaign in the same way moving forward. So to lose point a little bit earlier, you have to be agile and never think you're going to do things the same way all of the time. It's how you're going to communicate and how you're going to get make sure those messages resonate. That's our job. Does anyone have a case a case study where a narrative driven marketing influenced consumer perception of your brand? Sure. Small Business Saturday is something that I worked on early in my career for American Express, and this was in the 2009 economic downturn. There was very great frustration in uh, the American people with regard to Congress's inability to seem to quell the inflation. People were being foreclosed on. People were from you know. Uh, protesting in Zuccotti Park, which was across the street from American Express. And that campaign was founded on two narrative insights. One, 68 cents out of every dollar generated by a small business stayed in the local community. And two, small businesses created nine out of every 10 jobs in America. And so it was actually a consumer poop movement. People don't necessarily know this. It was a consumer movement to tap into their angst about their the inability of Washington to address the economic woes, um, and we made small business the hero and the beneficiary, and small businesses did definitely benefit, and what became the most awarded marketing campaign of the last 50 years um, was all about giving consumers these two data points that they would repeat to each other and then go shop small, and uh, we were very, very proud of that. The marketing budget on it was relatively small. It was the story and the storytelling around that story that made it successful. Do you think that's what ad tech companies need to do? I mean, we mentioned Apple's done a great job of becoming the privacy company. And obviously, um, uh, Shiv mentioned that a couple days ago quite extensively. 
Yeah, so what I do mean, we do? A, Lou is doing quick... it. I think Lou is doing it with like Adfontes Media and others in news, you know, invest in news in those platforms. I, I mean, I don't, Lou can speak back to that, but what I admire about the work that he's doing is he's come from AJ Gallo and Amex and Bank of America, and he's bringing some of that thinking that comes from those, you know, fantastic brands and it's playing out in some campaigns that are bringing that sort of attention around these responsible, fantastic brands with fantastic leaderships out in a way that people hadn't really been doing in the ad tech space. And so how I do, think how do also, brands... Go ahead, Pesach. The other thing in B2B is that like in B2C, if you're talking about a brand like Krispy Kreme, which like everyone knows they have a different challenge. Like the challenge for B2B brands is mostly that they're boring and nobody cares about them. Like that, like, right. Like if we just tell it straight, the fact is like most people, even in ad tech, like do not know about your ad tech company unless you're one of the big ones. Right. So the challenge is again, that consistency in POV thing where it's like, you need to like most ad tech brands have an awareness problem. And the way that you solve that is a combination of the message and the channels per Lana's point, right? It's like you, so yeah, have a differentiated message, have something interesting to say that's going to want to make reporters talk to you and put you on their platforms, but then also be out there every day, right? Like Shiv Gupta, the founder of View of Digital, whom you mentioned, is an excellent practitioner of this. And I know he works with Lana, um, but beyond also his PR work, which is fantastic. Um, he's out there every day, right? Like he and Miles, who are co-founders of View of Digital, like, they, they're great practitioners of marketing in the space, even though, um, they're not, you know, marketers per se, because, or it's not their only job, because they practice that consistency thing. They have something to say that's of value, that's of interesting to people, and they're out there saying it on a daily basis. And if like most ad tech companies were able to meet that bar, they would be doing a lot better than they are now, which hopefully is exciting to people because that's a big opportunity if people are ready to seize it. Do you think that ad tech companies need to refresh their image to be more exciting? I mean, is is this an actual issue? I, I, I mean, I think it's an issue. Yeah. I mean, does I, any does anybody want Jeff Green to be more exciting, for example? Well, it's so interesting that you brought him up. I was just going to say maybe less exciting. So one thing that Trade Desk did, um, and I was lucky enough to work with them um, before the IPO, it was such an interesting time because that was a very consolidated market. The Trade Desk was one of the last to market, right? Media Math was there. Moby was there. There were many DSPs that you could have worked with. Um, most were selling directly into brands and agencies. And the Trade Desk decided focus on agencies. They launched the agency academy, et cetera. And so they were very much for the agency during this period, and they were getting a ton of business um, and doing things a little bit differently. So I think they were a great case study, by the way. Um, and so I don't think you always have to be provocative or exciting because I don't know if Bank of America or others are expecting their ad tech companies to be exciting. Like we're, we're very much work brands, right? Intermediaries that are very responsible for some serious things and to move media and to drive outcomes that make or break, you know, quarterly revenues and things like that. So, uh, you know, whether it's uh, somebody being a front person like Shiv and Miles, which I think is important because they're a very unique education brand in the space. And so being the face of that, they take really seriously. So I think it really depends on what your business is and, and how you want to show up and, and what that means to those you're serving. Yeah. So if I was a new ad tech company, how, what would you recommend I do to differentiate myself? 
What would catch your attention, Lou? I would start out by talking about our mission and our purpose. Right now, so many, you know, what are there, 22,000 companies on the Lumascape chart? That's a very crowded field, but I would say that is all the more reason that you need to differentiate if you're coming into it, right? If your vision and purpose is to help marketers serve their customers better by creating unparalleled experiences that are highly relevant to each individual, that's going to get my attention versus we can improve your performance by 2.3% and your ROAS by 5%, right? That was Charlie Brown's teacher. I wouldn't, you know, somebody five levels below me at Bank of America would have had the next conversation with you after that. But if you come to me and say, we want you to really win in the marketplace with your consumers in every touch point, man, I'm going to take that person to my boss mm -hmm. and say, we should be talking to them. Maybe we should make an investment in this company, right? So mission and vision. And, you know, the other thing, and, and I really want to stress this as somebody who's been pitched for like the last three and a half decades. Show up at the first meeting with a pad of paper and a couple of sharp pencils. Don't come and pitch me shit. Come and have a conversation with me. Let's talk about philosophically how do we see the world. Let's say where is the puck is going together. And I'm going to come away from that meeting saying, man, she really understands this business. I want to serve on her advisory council. I want to hear more from her. I want to hear her speak. Uh, let's decommoditize what we do. And let's share values and principles and practices. Is there a brand in the ad tech space that's done this really well? Anybody? There's brand and people. Uh, again, Lou just recently, she's not even a client. I just adore her. So Lou just recently introduced me to Allie Manning and Chalice AI. And man, I can't stop thinking about them and what they do and how valuable their solution is. And part of the reason is she just shows up and pays attention and tells you why she's doing what she's doing. And so their algorithms for any brand, by the way, I'll sing their praises again, not even my client, but if you are a marketer and you want to drive media and you want it to align with your purpose and your goals, they allow you to do that. And so she was just so passionate about it in a way that I had not heard before that I just felt like it was a fresh voice that belongs on every panel, by the way, if any programmers are listening to this right now. Um, unbelievable. Uh, Tamara over at Barometer is another really interesting person. She's from the Ukraine. And so she just uh, fundamentally doesn't speak like everybody else in the industry. She kind of shows up and uh, looks a bit like Pippi Longstocking, but she's Dr. Tamara Zubaiti, and uh, she really gets things. I just want to build on what you just said before we go to okay. Joe, Lana, if you can hear me. Um, so, you know, I look at all the world as Maslow's hierarchy of need. If you remember that from high school, you know, you got your safety needs down the bottom and you got some enabling needs and you've got self-actualization at the top. And to, to Lana's exact point, all the things that we are technically proficient at, all of those fundamental core capabilities, which used to be self-actualization for ad tech are now actually safety needs. They're at the bottom of the pyramid. They move from the top to the bottom in one day because of exactly what Lana was just talking about. You need to actually have this idea at the top. And I guess, I guess Lana, it's why you named your company Purpose. Um, what is our purpose and how can you align to that? What is true north? How do we, how do we build something together, forge a new path together that differentiates how I go to show up in the market against my competitive set, but also showcases your core vision. 
And that, honestly, I think is how you, you flip this on its head. Joe, I'm sorry. You go ahead. I mean, I just think this is a question of what is the intersection of what your customers care about, what people in the industry are talking about and care about, and what do you do that's actually different, right? Like when I say to be um, that everyone's boring and like your main problem is that nobody cares, it's not that you should be needlessly controversial, um, but like the trade desk has the benefit of being a market leader already. Like the vast majority of DSPs are just trying to get like some oxygen, right? And so for them, it becomes a question of, uh, what, like, you're not as big as the trade desk or Google or Amazon. Like, what do you do, uh, for a specific subset of agencies and brands, uh, that should make them care about you? So to lose point, what is your purpose or what is your mission? And then are you in the market every day talking to those people, reminding them that you exist and engaging them ideally in a two-way conversation? That's super smart, Joe. In fact, James Hercher just did that article on the specialized DSPs. Every comms person that maybe spoke to him should get a little star that week because that meant that they were all differentiated enough that they made that list of um, specialty DSPs that don't do what the trade desk does and are selling into markets that are aligned with what they put out there. So I thought that was a really interesting roll-up piece. And the work Joe does is fantastic. In fact, um, uh, we love to work with Joe as much as we can, but also when we have uh, folks that um, get in their own way, right? Some people are really good at leading companies and business, but they're not eloquent or, or they're, you know, like writing is not their discipline. And so Joe really helps people bring the stories to life. Um, and they're, you know, can be great at other things. Not everybody has to be as great of a writer as Joe or Lou as Lou is. Before we go, if there was one thing you would tell an ad tech company about 2024, just two sentences, what would it be, starting with Lou? It's going to seem different than ever before. The bar is being raised on the things that you took for granted in the past, and the best way to get out in front of it is to have a mindset shift that cookies going away is going to be the best thing that ever happened to marketing and start to reorient your narrative along those lines. Lana. Just that saddle up and be comfortable with the change. It's going to happen. And so rather than just being anxiety ridden all year, embrace it and figure out how you can adjust and excel. Last but not least, Joe. Uh, third party cookies are finally going away figure out specifically what it means for your business and your customers and whether it's an advantage or a disadvantage and customize your message and your business approach to that situation. Right. Thank you, everyone. And that's all, folks. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform or YouTube. 